You're listening to the DSBC podcast. For more information, visit us at dsbc.church. What's up, DSBC? This is Pastor Caleb. Wanted to give you a little introduction to this podcast episode. This is part two of an at-the-table gathering we did with Rabbi Jeremy Schneider, uh, where he talks about uh, his views on uh, Judaism, how it's practiced in modern day, how it's uh, different than Christianity and some of the uh, nuances there. So uh, a note about the audio quality, it's a little bit rough. We recorded this in a group setting. And um, so there's occasion where you're maybe not gonna be able to hear some of the folks talking on the other side of the room. Uh, but we believe that the content is uh, good and uh, that it will be a blessing to you as you engage with it. Uh, Jeremy, one of the... Um, questions that we got was, do you think the Shema is maybe, could be considered a belief statement? It's the closest thing we have. Chapter 6 of the book of Deuteronomy, verse 4, um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. That's what we call it. That's the Shema. Um, if you force me to say there is a dogma in Judaism, what is it? That's the closest answer you get. But... We're also called Israelites. And the Hebrew word Israel comes from the story in Genesis about Jacob wrestling with God and wrestling all night. And Jacob, um, the Torah, the Bible says that he was wrestling with God. Uh, it says it's unclear who he's wrestling with, by the way. Uh, it's a whole other conversation. But if we assume and go with the story, the translation that it's wrestling with God, Jacob says to God, let me go. It's the sun's coming up. And, and uh, oh, God says, let me go. And Jacob says, not until you bless me. And God says, okay, your name is no longer Jacob. Your name is Yisrael. Jacob goes on to have 13 children, 12 sons and one daughter. Those 12 sons become, quote, the children of Israel. So those are the 12 tribes. Um, and when you go back to the word Israel, we're not Israelites referring to the land um, in the Middle East. We're referring to the person who wrestled with God. So to be an Israelite is to be somebody who struggles and wrestles with God and finds blessing from it, not someone who... Um, has dogmatic faith and doesn't question in that regard. So that's that's my gentle pushback and argumentative style of your Shema question. <laughs> that's a good sermon. Yeah. I'm going to do that next Sunday. Yeah. No. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Good. Uh, how would you define Messiah? So um, I will reinterpret that question as um, what do we uh, believe happens after our lives or what is the afterlife or because it all goes into that category. If I were to fill this room with every book on Judaism and how to do Jewish and Jewish thought, the number of books dedicated to Messiah or afterlife would equal to one of the books in here. The rest of the books represent how to live today. In other words, um, we, no one, <laughs> I say it flippantly in here, but no one's died and come back, so we don't know what's going to happen there. So 
we leave to what we do know, which is how you can live your life and live a better life today. So um, um, that's why we have very little um, books dedicated to what's going to happen tomorrow um, in the afterlife. Your question on, his, on the face, what is the Messiah? The Messiah is the one who's going to announce, um, come back and, and announce that this, uh, this experiment's over. <laughs> Uh, you know, That's a, quite a fine way to. Put I know, it. right? I mean, it's the, there's a wonderful rabbinic tradition discussion about um, we must have done something wrong because I mean, you just look at the pain and the hurt in this world, and you know what? It, it's just it's it's horrible to to be human, and if you think about the pain and struggles that we go through and, and the hurt, and yet at the same time, there's so many blessings and so much love and so much. It's uh, it it. Um, that's why what we focus on is the here and now. Um, and Reform Judaism really has moved away from Messiah language. Orthodox Judaism still puts Messiah very much forefront, and their work tirelessly to bring about the Messiah. Reform Judaism brings about the Messianic age. We talk about a time when we're no longer living in this uh, headache, um, but a better times. So we think of it as just better times. There's a lot of conversation in evangelical spaces around deconstructing faith. Mm. Is that something that you experience as a rabbi or in Judaism? Um, what Can you give me an example of what that looks like for you? person grows up in the church. Uh, they usually are confronted with some, um, usually a crisis-type moment, a crisis of faith, and there's an encouragement from some to reevaluate their faith and deconstruct it, like, Put all, take all the pieces, start, kind of start from scratch again, and then rebuild faith. There's a thousand assumptions in how faith works in that question, but just the way I described it. But um, I'm not relating to the question. I'm sorry. Yep. Um, so maybe, can I yeah. give a little something? Please. Um, we talk about conversion. Okay. Okay. So I was believing, here we are, belief. You're talking about behaving, I'm talking about believing. Right. We are believing one way and we convert. We have a new belief system. Deconstruction is, the way I understand it to be used, is deconstructing that new belief system or, or just deconstructing my belief system. Starting that, over. Starting over scratch. and building a new one or converting. Do you, is that at all corollary to your way that you see, the lens that you see the world? For... Uh, for Jews or for people, yeah. I'm getting lost and hung up on the semantics of your question. When you say conversion, a Christian can convert in in, in evangelicalism. Yeah, is that yeah, a word? Yeah, you, you like convert to evangelicalism. Interesting. Yeah, that doesn't exist. Um, right. Yeah, I don't relate. I don't. I'm not sure. I, I can think of anything. Or, um, can you think of something that you're aware of or leading me to? What happens when a Jew doesn't want to be a Jew no more? You can't be. You can't. You can't. You can't un-Jewish your identity. You you know your. You may choose to. It goes back to my point. You can stop doing Jewish, but it doesn't make you uh, any more, any less Jewish. Um, there are no. You don't get points for doing. You know, there's no bingo board to Judaism. It's just. What's that? Um, I think it's more than that, right? That we've we've definitely. Um, that's that's something that there's a problem with that because a lot of anti-Semitic um, would say you're no longer you're not supportive of America because 
you, your nationality is not American. So that's not true. Um, you can be a national, you could be part of, uh, of, of a, a country and still be Jewish. So I don't think it's a nationality in that way. Um, um, do, do you were, I saw your hand go up. Did you want to comment on this? Yeah. Right. 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 I I would. Right. So I think it. I think it underlines the point that I was trying to say, which is you can never stop being Jewish. You can just stop doing Jewish. Um, it's it's actually the one thing that's ironic. The difference between Orthodox Jews and 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 liberal Jews. This is the one thing that reformed liberal Jews are actually more orthodox about than orthodoxy. Orthodoxy would say if you're born to a Jewish mother, period, you're Jewish. You can't lose that identity. You may stray, you may go off and do something else, but you're always Jewish. For me, if you were born Jewish or not, um, and you... And you um, chose to live a non-Jewish life and then you want to come back, I would argue as a liberal progressive Jew that one should go through Jewish conversion because it goes back to my point that you want to, you're now choosing Judaism um, and it has more intentionality and meaning that way. But in orthodoxy, you're a Jew no matter how many Christmases you do or, you know, it doesn't matter. You're Jewish. You either are or you're not. So they're actually more lenient on this issue than, uh, than I think I am, which is ironic. So if I, not being born Jewish, chose to convert to Judaism, yes. once I go through that process, I am now classified as a full-fledged Jewish person, or am I kind of like a sub-Jew? <laughs> so so um, the answer is an asterisk, depending on whether the answer is yes or no. Um, if you convert Reformed Judaism, then you're identified as a Reformed Jew by Reformed Jews. Chabad, or ultra-Orthodox, or Orthodox Jews, don't think Reformed Jews are Jews. Right? So... Orthodoxy, so if you convert orthodoxy, then everybody thinks you're Jewish. If you convert reform, then they don't think you're Jewish, but the reform community thinks you're Jewish. So in other words, orthodoxy rabbis don't think I'm a rabbi. Orthodox. But I don't serve the orthodox community. I serve the reform community. And so I don't need them to tell me if I'm Jewish or not. I'm reform Jewish, and that's my community. But I always have to tell someone when they come to my office and they say they want to convert, I have to give that disclaimer. If you ever see yourself one day maybe marrying uh, an Orthodox person, they're not going to think you're Jewish. Or if you want to move to Israel, you're going to have a hard time um, with the paperwork, even though um, you know Jews have a right of return. I don't know if you're familiar with this. We have any Jew in the world could claim their citizenship in the state of Israel. What happens if you convert? 
the orthodoxy control the religion in Israel. It was a deal that was struck between the government and the, relig- and the, and the Orthodox rabbis in 1948 when the country was established. The secular Jews said, we'll run the politics and you, it was a handshake. You take care of the religion, we'll take care of the politics. And to this day, orthodoxy runs the country in, in, in the religious domain. So if you want to get married, you have to get married orthodoxy. There's, there's, no, there's no other way. Um, so we spent the last 70 years fighting for the rights of non-Orthodox Jews and we're slowly chipping away at it, slowly Supreme Court decisions that recognize made huge strides. I don't know if you saw in the news just the other day during COVID um, when nobody could do anything, the state of Utah started doing weddings online. Does anybody know what I mean? Read this story. It is a true story. Um, you could get married via Zoom and licensed by the state of Utah. So Israelis saw this loophole. Because if you get married outside of Israel, that's the answer for liberal or non-Orthodox Jews in Israel. They just go to another country, get married the way they want, and then go back to Israel and it's recognized. What this did was they're still standing in the land of Israel. They used Zoom. They got married and they're legal by the state of Utah. Therefore, by definition of the Jew, of Israeli law, their marriage should be recognized by the state of Israel. And just last week, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the of the um, uh, of the uh, liberal um, and said, even though they're physically in Israel. The licensee is outside of Israel, and therefore that counts. And it was a huge blow against uh, orthodox control of the country in overall life cycle events. Does that make sense? That makes sense? So what you're saying is, is that you guys don't have anything over Christianity. We are all human beings. Yes. Yes. There's probably Thank you. fewer divisions. I have, I've, I've spent my lifetime around Christians and I still don't get it. I've kind of narrowed it down to, I've heard that there's like high church and low church. I've heard that expression, but I'm still confused on, and then I've spent the last 10 years working with evangelical uh, Christians and I still, I think they're over here. I don't know where you guys are. I'm trying trying to to understand, but it's, what's that? That it's my understanding of the difference between Protestants and Catholics. What I'm told, Catholics are high church, right, and Protestants are low church. Well, no, and that's, little, been, that's just that's it, that could be my it, just. It, can we can we cut this from the record? Can we cut this from the record? So, so and then I don't know where I'm going to invite you to my next church history. Class. Okay, good. Yeah, there's a lot to it. <laughs> yeah. So, you on the New Testament? I'm assuming you read it just. I mean, I've read it um, like I, um, I know it's going to sound weird, and Caleb and I were just talking about this. I read it the same way in many ways that I read our own Bible, because I read the Bible through the scientific lens um, that there are multiple authors of the text. Um, is your community aware of this? Do they understand what I'm talking about when I refer to that? Keep going, and we'll see if we get questions. So, Jews... Liberal, progressive, reform. This is not orthodoxy. Okay, this is, we're talking about the main difference between us. Liberal, progressive Jews believe in the scientific theory of documentary hypothesis that there are 
multiple voices in the Bible. That as you read the Bible, as you read the Torah even, you can hear at least five different people's voices. You can hear the J, E, P, D, and R. Those are the five voices of the Bible. And that's like, the example is how in different chapters, it refers to God in one name, and the next chapter or next book, it refers to God in a different name. Those, aren't, those, are, those are blinking red lights of alarms that these are different voices talking because they had different names for God. So um, you can date these voices to different times, 3,000 years old, 2,800 years old, 2,500 years old, and 2,200 years old. It's kind of like if I were to give you an English book and you could flip through it and see um, Shakespearean voices versus early 19th century voices versus somebody talking in the 1970s versus a teenager the way they talk in slang today. You can identify those different slangs in different way in which they talk. You understand what I'm saying? So when I read the Bible, I read it in Hebrew. I read it in the original, and, and, and sometimes you're reading it, and it's like, whoa, it just went into a whole nother, it's like jumping from a Shakespearean text to a, to a, like Wild West. Like a Wild West text, and we just jumped, potentially you just jumped 800 years from one sentence to the next. But when you read it, I'm imagining you're reading in English, so you're reading a, someone or a group of people's interpretation. Then, the Bible has no periods, no exclamation points, and no question marks, and no commas, which means it's just a run-on of words. And somebody, multiple versions, decided, I'm going to read this to you. Well, what if what you read as a question mark or as a comma, um, change, you put move the comma or move the period, we uh, changes that sentence, therefore what dogmatic faiths have used and quoted biblical text in the English, if you actually read it in the Hebrew and move a comma, could be a whole new sentence. They wrote an English, an English book about this called um, Eats, Shoots, and Leaves. Um, it was a, a, a woman in England who was trying to make a point about grammar, English grammar, and it talks about a panda bear that walked into a bar, eats, shoots, and leaves. So the joke is, right, you eat, shoots, comma, right? but the bear eats, shoots, and leaves. But depending on where you put the comma, it's two different sentences. It means two different things. One comma changed everything. Same thing in, in, the, in the Bible. You guys were reading it and locked in the lens of one person. What if I told you that um, if you were to learn the Hebrew, read in the Hebrew, for example, um, the Hebrew word for virgin that when um, a faith that I shall not name in this room, read it as a virgin woman gave birth. The Hebrew word is the same word that we use as just a young, it's referring to a young woman. Never said anything about a virgin, it just said that she was young. So the translation rang, you know, if she's young, then she must be a virgin, which is how you sort of interpret it, and therefore you run with it. But it doesn't say that, it just refers to the way we refer to you know, here's a kid, here's a teenage, here's a tweeny, a teen, a, a tween, a teenager, a young adult. It's just a Hebrew word for referring to that age group. Um, but interpreter ran with it and built a whole religion on top of it. <laughs> so I would challenge you perhaps to 
go back and, and, and you know, sit down. There are books where, um, I, 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 you, I have a book on my shelf where um, it'll take line by line and you could see it translated in a variety of ways. And just even if you read it differently of how each other person has read it and how do you read it, I think is the goal, the Jewish goal is, well, when you read it, what do you hear? What do you read it as? And that becomes the, um, the goal of our lives today is to read it and hear how we, well, how we find it. Not, it's not locked in translation for us because we read it in the Hebrew. We don't read it through the lens of um, King James Version or New NIV or what all these other things are. Did that... Well, in English, that this is how for the Bible, Hebrews, how they it through Hebrew versus how we converted to English and changed the whole context. Um, um, I will get that to you. I, I I can see it on my shelf, and I can't remember his name, but it will come to me. I will get. I'm going to come back to that. Well, because that's what I always hear all the time. That if you actually read it. Even the Greek is a translation, right? It, you've jumped from by using a word that wasn't in the Hebrew. You, you, they made up a Greek word for it, and then that Greek gets translated into the English. So now you're removed multiple voices away from the actual text, um, and it's 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 fascinating. It's a it can be for some debilitating and and crushing because it's like you want it to be the word of God. And now, as a liberal progressive rabbi, I, I think the wrestling with the text and finding the meaning is the point, whereas there are folks who want the word to be specific, and that's the word of God, and period. But to me, it doesn't make sense to read the English and feel like that's the definitive answer, because you're not reading the actual text that was supposed to be given at, the, at, at Sinai. Is that... Well, Dennis Prager put out. Yep. Your view on that, is that good or is that kind of... Dennis Prager brings wonderful insights and, and great teachings, but he's orthodox. He teaches from an orthodox perspective. Doesn't have very common complimentary things to say about Reformed Jews. Um, but, he's a, but, he, but taking that with a grain of salt and realizing what his biases are, you can learn a lot from his podcasts and the, things, the books he's written and taught. Just understand, you just got to take it with a... Take with a, a little bit of salt there. Kosher salt. Kosher salt. Did you? I thought I saw. Without thy will. Yes. Go for it. You mentioned earlier uh, something about that you believe that Got you're it. responsible for your sins uh, alone. I think if I remember right, said Ezekiel where he talks about the sins of the father, not responsibility of the son, and so forth. And we're in a society where we're all being pressured to look at uh, reconciliation and reparation and uh, for whatever our ancestors have done. And God displaced an awful lot of people for the, his chosen people. Uh, is, is that something that you guys deal with or get pressure on from social changes and 
Um, I, I, I'm not dismissing your question, but I think the answer for Jews goes back to the original answer, which is our goal is to help make the world a better place. And if it, through social justice issues, um, you, will, you will find the reform movement, reform Judaism to be more in line with um, the platform of the democratic peep, uh, uh, voting bloc just because of those social justice issues. But there are plenty of members of my congregation who are not, who don't vote dem blue. So it's, I, I don't, um, I think, um, I think Reform Judaism is, is um, as a platform, is about social justice issues, but on the ground and away from the um, bright lights of the Jewish mega centers of New York City or Los Angeles or Miami, we're out here in a red state, in a purple city, like those, um, I'm just being honest, like it's, it's different out here than when you're in a blue city with blue, you know, just blue, 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 blue. Um, I think things come out differently. Did I, I dodge that question successfully? Um, I, I thought of it, it popped in my head. The book is called, um, Who Wrote the Bible by Richard Elliott Friedman. Um, a provocative and stimulating look at the writing of the Bible and the lives of those who wrote it. A fascinating history for scholars and lovers of the Bible alike. So what he does is he will pull out text and he'll show you, like, why are there two creation stories in the Bible? Why are there two? There's multiple versions in the Bible that are written multiple times. Well, those were different authors. And the last person, which is called the Our Voice, who sort of rolled it all up in redaction, the redactor who put all the text together, and who decided what's in and what's out. So there are Bible, there are books that are as old as the Bible, but not in the Bible. Right? You know what, right? Those are called the Apocrypha. The Apocryphal books are books, I always think of it as um, March Madness in NCAA, like there's 62 teams make it in, but we always argue about 63, 64, 65, 66, what, what teams we thought should have gotten in. Well, somebody had to have closed the Bible, what you call the Old Testament, what I call the Bible, somebody sealed it, and there were still books left on the table. I didn't get in. Those books, Book of Judith, Book of... Maccabees. Uh, no, uh, yes, uh, no, yes, us, yes, 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 yes. Maccabees is not in the Bible. So um, uh, there are books that are as old but didn't get in, um, and that speaks to a lot of this. Uh, so Richard Elliott Freeman's book. Richard Elliott Friedman. 74% of Google users like this book. It's fantastic. Just saying. It's beautiful. You can get it now on the Kindle store. All right, all right, all right, all right. So, would I be wrong to say that... Yes. <laughs> ...built more on works than grace? Correct. Yeah. Because, and you asked me this question, what is sin... Um, remember that I teach through the lens of rabbinic Judaism, right? So we don't have a short answer for anything. But if Jewish life, if you've ever heard this word called halakha, halakha is the Hebrew word for Jewish law. 
Halakha, when translated back into English, means the path or the way. So if you're walking on the path of life, then you're following Jewish law. If you sin in Hebrew, you have stepped off the path, therefore broke the wall or the rule. And as I mentioned before, the atonement in Hebrew is called teshuva. You make teshuva. Some call it repentance. But in Hebrew, that word translated back into English is turn around. So I made a mistake. I turn back around. I get back on the path and I keep going, which is why I said earlier tonight, how do you know when you've truly repented? When on that path, you get presented with the same opportunity and you don't do it, you're still on the path. It's, I, I hate to make it sound that simple, but it's that simple. Have you guys ever seen anyone do that before? What's that? Every Sunday. Yeah. So another translation of the word sin, uh, one is breaking the, going across the boundary and getting back in. Transgression. Transgression, right? That's, the, that's what we would call it. Another is, um, is uh, imagining the bullseye and you missed the mark. You tried, but you missed it. And so... What do you do in, in that game? You try again? I mean, you've, you, you acknowledge you missed the mark, you repair it, but you just, it, it's not, we don't, we're not weighted down the way that I understand uh, other tradition to do it. Cool. Yeah. So I think I'll do a few quick fire questions. Fire questions. Uh, what's that thing on your head? So the thing on my head is not in the Bible whatsoever at all. Um, it is called a kippah in Hebrew or a yarmulke in Yiddish. Yiddish is um, German and Hebrew combined. Um, so that's Yiddish. Spanish and, and Hebrew combined is called Ladino, if you've ever heard Ladino. So there's Yiddish and Ladino. Um, so the, the, yam, the yarmulke, which is Yiddish, or the kippah, which is Hebrew, um, is very simple to um, indicate that this is the top of me that there is something higher than ourselves. So it's a, that's why the, even the Pope wears it, because it, it's just a recognition of humility. And uh, sorry, I was not, and you said fast, but I'm not fast. It's okay. What's the, the head covering. What's the Talmud? The Talmud is the, is the um, recordings. It was never meant to be a public book, by the way, but it's... Um, when there was no longer, remember I told you the temple was destroyed and the rabbis all got together, they became what's called a Sanhedrin, which is the clearinghouse. The, the, all the, the head rabbis would be sitting together in a room like this and there would be a, a person in the corner taking notes. The Talmud is the notes in shorthand, by the way, because it was never meant to be a public document, of the conversation going on in the room over the interpretation of the Torah. So... You read the text, and you're like, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. What does that mean? And so everyone starts shouting out answers. I think it means this, I think it means this, I think it means this. And the person over there said, well, Rabbi Caleb thinks it's this, and Rabbi Jeremy thinks it's that, and, and it literally reads like that. And then, and then it reads with a consensus, and the answer goes to Rabbi Caleb. And, but what's interesting about Judaism is that we record all the opinions. 
It's not just, here's the right answer. It's, here's the right answer and everyone else's answer, just in case we were to grow and learn and go back, and that guy who we thought was wrong actually turned out to be right. And we can still trace it. It's all there. So it's a six, 600 years worth of shorthand recordings of the conversations amongst the rabbis interpreting the Bible. Love it. Do you guys do heresy? It's very hard to be a heretical in Judaism. You, um, we are a pretty darn big tent. Our line is pretty much Jesus. <laughs> like, everything before that, like you're good to go. Because when when you know when someone asks me what does Judaism think about um, hell or what did you insert any provocative like you know what the answer is my answer is well what century because we've 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 had we've been as rabbinic tradition we've been having these conversations over and over and over again so what we thought we believed in 11th century we changed our mind in the 15th century and by the 20th century you've got science to prove us all wrong and so you know it it, it um it's very 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 there's no i would go the short answer is no there's really i can't think of anything can i be a jewish heretic you can there's there's only three sins that are oh man i want to set myself up and i have to know what all three are uh, the three worst things you can do are, um, I can only think of two. Ah, I'm not going to answer the question because I don't want to get it wrong and then you're going to quote me. Um, <laughs> I would never do that. I know. Yep, nope, yep, yep. Keep going. What's the next one? Uh, who's your favorite character in the Bible and why is it Caleb? Ah! <laughs> Um, uh, the three sins that you can't make atonement for, the three things that you can't just turn around and make it right, um, idolatry, sexual immorality or incest, and murder. Those are the three things that are considered, like, if, if we're using the word heresy as, what's your definition of heresy? Well, in, in my tradition, it's you believe the wrong thing. Oh, because we got that grace. Thing oh, going. so you I took that a whole. Always, yeah. I took that a whole another way. Um, no, not at all. Right, not at all. Not even the slightest. Got it. Uh, what is one of the most difficult portions of scripture for you? Um. Um. Uh, blah, 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 blah. um so. And I'm sure this happens in, in Christianity or evangelical. I don't know if it does. But for me, um, when we read the, I told you, read the Torah every week. And there's a, that book is rated R. Let's be honest, right? I mean, there's some pretty grotesque and, and, and detailed, disgusting things that take place. So my job as the teacher is to be, know my audience, know who I'm talking to, if I'm teaching the religious school or whatever. So I have to constantly navigate, oh, let's jump to this line over here. Don't look over here. You know, so, so what I find um, um, is our children hear the Bible stories, but don't realize that we're navigating around some incredibly interesting and provocative texts. Um, just this week, we read um, in the Bible... Uh, in uh, the end of the book of Numbers, when Pinchas goes crazy and stabs because there was a, a Jew having intercourse with a non-Jew and, and heretical and 
he stabs them. I don't know if you read the text very clearly. He stabs. Never mind. I mean, I'm, in, I'm too uncomfortable to even say it in front of adults. I, I feel like um, But uh, it's a very specific way in which they were killed. Um, we navigate around that text for kids. But my point is that so we, have, we teach the children these, these biblical stories. And, and my job is to teach the text and make it relevant in our lives today. Um, but then you get the kids and they become bar bat mitzvah or they, um, and they leave the synagogue. And they continue their education. They become experts in their fields. They become lawyers or doctors. See what I did there? Jewish stereotype. Mm, right. Um, right? They, they, uh, they go off and become graduate degrees and whatever. And yet they still look at their world in the faith lens as a child. Because the last time they did any study was when they were 13. And so I find often that people don't come back to the synagogue until they either get married or they start to have children themselves. And it's a, it's a reoccurring problem that keeps feeding itself. And then, like my understanding of the Christmas or Santa Claus story, it's something we tell our kids. It's not really in the Bible. Hanukkah is the same version. We have the version we tell our kids. And then when the kids become adults and they realize it has nothing to do with um, the oil that lasted for eight days, that's just something we made up. It's actually this military story of the war. That's not very fun and exciting. So we made up this kid's version. It's our version of Santa Claus. And the kids get older and they're like, what? You know, and they hear what it's really about. Um, again, not sure if I answered your question, but that's what made me think that's of it. I've often found it strange that we do little plush Noah's Ark <laughs> for children. Like, like we read it to them before bedtime. Like, yeah. That's a horrifying story. <laughs> Oh, rockabye baby, let me tell you about the massive yeah. extermination yes. of the human race, except yes. for a few. Yeah. You know what they don't put on those little boats is the claw marks of all the people yes. trying to get oh, in. Oh, you know man. I, um, we should go into business together. I, <laughs> plush dolls. I, I had a person, I remember studying with a bar mitzvah kid, that was his Torah portion, and his interpretation of it, he's like, so you're saying that God gave the world a bath? Mm. I'm like, well, that's one way to do it. That's how I would preach it at youth camp. <laughs> exactly. Youth camp. We yes, like of course. So uh, Jeremy and I do a lot of stuff with the Multi-Faith Network. Uh, you're a part of that, as well as uh, Didmar, who's um, uh, the imam at the Islamic Community Center just up here on Yorkshire. And one of the things that I just wanted to say thank you to you, but also just to kind of give you guys a broader perspective, uh, Multi-Faith is different than Interfaith, uh, where... Would you actually, why don't you explain the sure. difference between multi-faith and interfaith? Yeah, so um, I actually wrote my thesis work uh, coming out of seminary on interfaith because of my Texas background, and I was a big fan of interfaith work. And uh, five, four years into my rabbinate, uh, being, I, it's a coincidence, but my first synagogue pulpit was in Dallas. I think they sent me back to Texas because I spoke Texan or something. Because I could say Shabbat Shalom, y'all. Like, um, all right, she's supposed to be Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, y'all. So I think that. But anyway, it was a coincidence. I went back to Texas and I was doing interfaith work. We're like, yay, interfaith work, yay! And it's warm and it makes everyone feel good. Um, but what, it, in my opinion, interfaith work. Um, minimizes our differences and lifts up our similarities and tries to act like we all get along and, and, and puts this rosy picture. Then I met Bob Roberts. And uh, Bob Roberts, if you haven't met, you would know if you've met Bob Roberts before. Um, and he introduced me to the idea of multi-faith. 
And in a quick answer, multi-faith is let's minimize our similarities and lift up our differences. And now that we've acknowledged it, let's go out and do the world and make the world a better place. My interpretation of what he says, I think he's still trying to convert me, but that's a different he point. Um, <laughs> um, it's, it's, um, it's, in my world, it's been very specific with evangelicals, multi-faith work. Um, um, and so there's a lot of, um, a lot of my congregants are still very nervous about multi-faith work and working with evangelicals because of our, um, um, of our fears that you all or your tradition is out to get us and out to convert us. And, and when my experience has been when I, when, uh, when, um, um, What's the dude's name down in East Valley? Um, Tyler, the, Josh, the other, Fraser. the other, the other guy. The the he went um, Cal for Jernigan. Cal. Cal Jernigan came to speak at my synagogue, and he was sitting on a panel. I had Imam Didmar on my left, and I had I had Cal, the pastor of a central, central right, very large, very large, right. And I, the conversation was unfolding like this, and. I, I, what made me think to ask, but I said, which one are you guys more afraid of, the Muslim or the evangelical? And everybody said, oh, it's evangelical. And Cal, what are you talking about? I love you people. I love you so much, I want you to convert to Jesus. <laughs> and I'm bringing you that love. And, and it was like, exactly, right? It's like, you know, for Jews, you can ask, once, but if we say no, move on. It's not a like, you know, constant, uh, we're not, you know, maybe next week kind of thing. And so with the history of, of uh, anti-Semitism over the last 2,000 years, we've, it's just been ingrained to be nervous around those who really, what I've come to appreciate and respect of my evangelical colleagues is it's not because they don't like us, it's because out of respect that they truly believe in their heart of hearts it's the right thing to do and that therefore they want to we're trying to help it's not from a place of you're wrong and i'm right it's i i'm trying to help you and i respect that i appreciate that it, it, it's nice and I, I i um but for those remember i told you that we jews aren't very good at the god talk so when you come at us with the god talk we start we're already on the on the wrong page and it makes us nervous and since everything you described of as Jesus and saving and since none of that is in any way shape or form in our in our lingo it it's it's ringing alarm bells um, it, it's it's the Spanish Inquisition all over again it's you know I mean it, it, it's the worst case scenario not yeah did I Um, no, it's not even on my radar. I don't, I might, I serve my synagogue and I'm not aware. I'm sure people do, but, um. Well, are they looked down upon as like they gave up It's not even in our, oh, um. So we, let me give maybe some background. So we'll hear stories of like a Jew, maybe usually ultra-Orthodox who becomes a Christian and they're like, they're, they're at ostracized. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the joke in our, our amongst ours is we grieve them as, as if they're dead. Correct. And that's, that's orthodox. 
that's or that's not reform because you know we blend in we we're you know it's a stone's throw away from you can't look out in a crowd and identify a reformed Jew from any other faith tradition person in the crowd orthodoxy you can see it right they're they're identified and they um, put themselves out um, in such a way that they keep themselves apart. Um, reformed, so therefore, we have interfaith marriage a lot. A lot of Jews marry Christians. Um, in fact, I'd say 50% of my religious school are um, uh, a Jewish parent and non-Jewish parent who are choosing to raise their kids Jewish, have one faith in the home, but they were not the same faith. And so they're welcome in the synagogue. It would never happen in orthodoxy, of course, but in liberal progressive, that's fine. Um, did I answer the question of multi-faith satisfactorily? Yeah, I think so. So I, I find that I have found interfaith, to, sorry, I have found multi-faith to be much more rewarding, much more challenging, um, um, and in many ways, I'm the wrong person at the table because I find the Muslim and the evangelical usually have more in common because they read literal and they read the word of the, of the they read Quran literally and evangelicals read it literally. Am I right? So in yeah, that gosh. experience, they find the Bible, whereas I read texts as metaphor. And so I sometimes feel like the odd person out, um, but it's but it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah one thing um, I think we've talked about this maybe with Denmark is if you just think about views of Jesus, uh, the view that Jeremy's articulated is he was a rabbi. The view that evangelical Christians articulate is he's the Son of God, rose from the dead, uh, the Messiah, and uh, Muslims are actually in between. So they'll view Jesus as a as a um, excuse me as a oh, prophet uh, in line with Moses. They'll have a higher view of Jesus. Uh, what's often struck me is on paper, uh, evangelical Christians and uh, conservative Islam, I think might be a way to, to say it, uh, have more uh, we're closer together on the view of Jesus than I am to Jeremy right. in our view of Jesus, which right. is really interesting. Right. Um, although I think Christians would understand that our heritage goes back. Sure. To some degree. But do you realize that the reason Abraham gets lifted up as we're all the children of Abraham is because through Isaac you get Judaism and through Ishmael you get Islam and um, Christianity traced their lineage through um, um, through Caleb, through um, um, Isaac, uh, Jacob, Esau, Esau, through Esau, through Esau, I apologize, through Esau, um, What's that? No, Christianity traces their lineage through Esau up to Abraham. Yeah, so Abraham and Sarah have Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac has... Correct, but, but um, Jacob has a brother. Are you talking about Islam going to Esau? Christianity. Christianity... I don't, I don't think most of them. Okay. They would say that we, we wouldn't do that, actually. Okay. Because we're... Uh, all the ethnos grafted in. Got it. That's the Paul does that for us. Got it. Stand. Stand. I like Esau. I stand correctly. Uh, I like Esau. I think it's pretty good. Guy.
Yeah, well, uh, you guys just say thanks to Jeremy for giving us. <laughs>